Okay. We return to the mechanisms which we better understand. Uh, we have located typical algodonodes, nodes, which are theoretical structures of our own invention at various levels in the total system. Um, so again, this is an, the, the interesting back and forth, right? Because the algodonode node is not necessarily taken from a concrete example in the body. It's actually an abstraction that is being read into the body. Um, so it, 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 it's not uh, entirely uh, based on uh, physiological analogy. Um, <clears throat> um, so the biggest switch of all, System 4, seems to operate like this too, but it is incredibly complex. Perhaps the best way to tackle this in terms of the excitation and inhibition, uh, which we know we must expect, or is in terms of the excitation and inhibition, which we know we must expect in any algonode. Uh, so, um, the important point is that this pair of influences exists in a different dimension from what that which carries messages. We saw all about metasystems in part one and have watched them in action throughout the hierarchic structures described in part two. That is why we called the cybernetic paradigm of the required switch an algonode, meaning a pain-pleasure modulated prob probabilistic switch. Clearly, neurophysiologists themselves would not care to have the pain-pleasure circuits, which have their own nerves, mixed up with the inhibition-excitation biochemistry of the synapse, just discussed. Still less would they equate either mechanism with the sleep-arousal controls to be mentioned next. Then what is my excuse? I want to distinguish sharply between the way in which the body achieves results and the logic of the results it achieves. Neurophysiological descriptions in this book are there because they are interesting and we can learn from them. The whole point about cybernetics as a science is that it should abstract the laws behind the control system it studies and make them generally available. When I call the algodonode a cybernetic paradigm, I mean that it is a theoretic mechanism which accounts for the body switchgear and that it can be modeled in a management information and decision system under automation. Now, the messages passing through an algodonode are either to be toned up, perhaps to the point of acceleration, um, and the whiz-bang declaration of their indomitable existence, or toned down, perhaps to the point of extinction. In the paradigm, this means raising or lowering the conditional probability that the switch actually transmits the message. This is the effect of excitation and inhibition, as it is in another situation of pleasure and pain. Okay, so this this was quite a tricky section for me uh, to grasp. Uh, I I think what Beer is saying is that the algodonic properties, these algodonodes, are generalizable to all the physiological systems he talks about, um, and that it's the abstract nature of the algodonode that makes it applicable to all of these, like, rightly distinguished neurophysiological subsystems. Uh, is that kind of what's going on, uh, Shane? I think that that's, that's an element of, this is a dense uh, paragraph, uh, but I think it's also, he's also mixing in there a, a bit of a callback to a previous thing where he was talking about the, the distinction between signal and the control of the signal. So that there's there's the activity and then there's the modulation of the activity, much like how you would have water flowing in a pipe and there's the flow of water, but then there's a valve 
the valve that lowers or raises the flow of water. Now, the valve is not the flow of water. It is a modulator. And so the pleasure pain signals are like the valve, whereas the activity is the activity. And he, I think he's trying to distinguish those two, right? So there's, there's um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's a pretty, it's a pretty dense paragraph, but I think those, those are both in there somewhere, right? Right, but it's it, I mean, it's also the case that like the the pleasure pain signals are fed back into the throughput, mm-hmm. right? So it's um, I yeah, I think he's he's saying like you can distinguish these things, but the algodonic effect is kind of general to all of them uh, in, in the way that you were describing their mm-hmm. uh, shame. Because right. I mean, you could have you could have a valve on a water a pipe, or you could have a um, you know an electrical current, and then another current which changes the rate of the or the, the, the volume of the first current. Right? Like there's, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in general, you can take take one wire, add a second wire to it, such that it modulates the first wire. That, yeah, yeah, that's abstractable. Yeah, right. It, it goes back to that basic example in the first section um, uh, about feedback. Uh, okay. Um, all right. So that that's that's pretty pretty much what we can grasp. What we can gloss from this. Uh, oh. Uh, okay, Steve, go ahead. Um, and maybe this is getting a little ahead. I mean, just a quick comment. Like, I actually found this conversation about or this discussion when he talks about the um, sort of modulating things so that, you know, when you're asleep, for example, things are sort of filtered out to the point where, you know, things might be happening, but the this, this stimuli and the sensory information is masked out because, you know, the conditional probabilities or the chemical, you know, how, all of that, like, is, is inhibiting things to a point where nothing really is that interesting. But, you know, if something's salient enough, it is going to get through. Um, and then by cutting off that link to the uh you know the connection to the real world the top level systems are left to their own devices and you're dreaming right um i mean i thought that it was a fascinating framing and like really cool if it's true um i have no idea if that's actually a plausible explanation of what's actually happening um but i you know i really did like that framing of it and it seems like it seems like a, a nice way of, of putting it that could conceivably be nice, but it also like I do like that that sort of global modulation idea here. Um, I think there's a lot of power to that because it really does speak to how well we are able to tune things in and out based on you know both intentionally and volitionally, um, and how we just sort of do that naturally. That's all. Yeah, I, I think both of those things are really powerful concepts. Um, uh, so there is a line, uh, just to kind of um, dig into that a little bit. Um, so um, now the cerebral cortex or the board of the firm or the cabinet of the government is busy thinking. Therefore, it does not wish to be disturbed. Therefore, not too much information needs to flow up the vertical axis to engulf it. If it is actual, actually asleep, which may be quite a useful analog of its doing something else altogether, such as unwinding, it will turn over the whole organism's operation to the autonomic system. It will effectively stop short at the third level up. System 3 is in command. Neurophysiology has much to tell us about this. Uh, so this, you know, reminds me a lot of... 
how um, I was I was mentioning to Lauren earlier of like how Parliament goes into recess quite a lot um, and doesn't sit the whole year. And a lot of us uh, would criticize that as, uh, you know, the parliamentarians um, exercising their privilege to not work like the rest of workers do and, and they don't work on the same schedule. And in fact, if we think about the sort of recursive nature of the VSM, there may be something uh, to that, right? In terms of saying, like, actually, maybe people need more vacation time uh, in order to integrate their other life stuff. Um, but there does seem to be a kind of link between that sort of like, yeah, system five can't be engaged all the time. It needs to, um, it needs to have that, that, that rest time, um, in order to function properly. Uh, Matt and then Shane. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, yeah, I, I think connecting um, uh, yeah, like parliamentary recess to sleep like totally makes sense because uh, like you know otherwise you'll just be eating your own feedback. But like that's part of why you know like you, like you do get um, uh, um, uh, you know psychotic symptoms um, uh, from sleep deprivation. And uh, also very 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 slight digression on, on the sleep stuff. Um, uh, uh, another um, ex example uh, could, could you know be uh, so th th there are these drugs. Um, like Detura or scopolamine that they use, that basically sever the connection between like, you know, your like sort of inner self and like the rest of your body and you're living in, and you're in a waking dream. Like, like it's horrifying. Like, like they're called delirious. And yeah, they, they actually get used, uh, uh, to rob people in some places because like, you know, you'll, you'll get some of this on your lips and then like you're just like, you're, 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 it, it, it's also probably the root of zombie mess. And then, you know, like you'll like empty your ATM account because like, you know, uh, uh, you, you, your, your brain is in a waking dream. You're totally disconnected from reality, but your body's still like, you know, I have this higher ring on through. Like. <laughs> right, right. Um, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to think about this stuff as well from a kind of ADHD angle, right? That like a big problem with ADHD is that the, the uh, attention filters are too weak um and dash the the flood of information but like the the flood of information just grabs your attention and drags it all over the place uh which actually inhibits volition right because you're not really in control of things if every fucking thing in your field of vision is the most interesting thing you've ever seen um so it is actually kind of essential for overall system volition to be able to stop paying attention to things and to um to not listen to the signals coming from the body, which it, I guess gets the parliament thing. There might be something actually essential in closing the door and going away that like is, is, is not like, it's not an abdication of responsibility as such. Maybe it is, you know, in the, in the parliament case, but there could be something truly essential about all that, but it is, it is strictly necessary to not be awake all the time. Well, and I think uh, another example we might think about is, how in some countries, uh, the COVID uh, pandemic and the societal shutdown or recess that happened um, actually was a spur to some long-term thinking, right? We see like in New Zealand, the introduction of the four-day work week um, mm -hmm. coming about. Uh, we see sort of like reassessment of overall systems. And that may point to like one of the reasons why our uh, futuring capacity as a society is so bad is because our society is designed on 
the scheme of the continuity of the accumulation of capital, right? It 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 it's it's based on uh, that um, the the self reflexive circuit of production. Uh, I forget exactly what Marx calls it in volume two, uh, but the primacy of that circuit and of the continuity of its flows above all else. And that may be one reason why we are actually consistently failing um, as a society to address long term problems, uh, because we're not actually getting any recess except in. Uh, really uh, extreme examples like this pandemic. Um, so it's an interesting thing to think about, about like sort of the overall organization. Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. A few observations. John uh, Sackle with Shane said, um, algodonic signals, especially on the algos side of the equation, are stressful. And I think... The way that technology currently does algodonics is really messed up and it's contributing to how stressed out we are. Like every time I get an email notification, I feel this weird pang in my gut. You know, my phone is constantly giving me alerts for all kinds of things and I silence most of them because they stress me out. Um, I think having a handle on algodonics is a UI quality of life goes into even to the political level. Like I've had jobs where my boss could call me or email me 24 seven with whatever trivial concern he was wrapped up in. And it was stressful as hell. It got to a point where my wife, made me look for another job because it was stressing out the entire family. Um, I, I also, the other thing about it that's really interesting is the lack of algodonics means that the system five just sort of blissfully snoozes out and just thinks whatever it's thinking. If you're wondering how a system as complex as the United States of America could be run by an idiot like Donald Trump, who's mostly looking at Twitter on the toilet or golfing, like, that's how, you know, he's like, he's got algodonic channels that wake him up, like right wing media propaganda and other things. But the system is pretty heavily decoupled from the executive in this case. Yeah, it's just uh, has really terrible crisis response because <laughs> it like the system four or system five linkage is completely fucked. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Lauren, please go ahead. Oh, I, I just want to submit it to Jeremy because I had the exact same thing happen and it kind of resulted in a micro crisis management episode where it worked out okay, <laughs> but then it went straight back to normal, which is like what I'm always terrified with when these things happen. Um, where my boss called me at like eight o'clock and I was making dinner, having worked kind of late, and he was like, Oh, Lauren, like, are you at the office? And I was like, no, like I'm at home cooking dinner. <laughs> he was like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's fine. I was like, mm -hmm. and he's, I was like, what's up? And he's like, well, we've got a, a uh, proposal due tomorrow that I that we have to do tomorrow. And I was like, oh, cool. And he's like, so can we do it? I was like, yeah, we'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> like, I'm going to eat, going to sleep, then we're going to do it tomorrow. And he was like, okay. And then tomorrow, like, he actually was, like, 
okay about getting other people to like help me out. So I wasn't going to write like a whole proposal in a day. And um, and that moment, I was like, oh, is this changed? Like, it's like, like it's sort of with the butterfly meme. Like, is this is this changed? Um, and no, it tends to make normal. But uh, yeah, there's those moments of like sort of crises where thing, things can come out of it that are quite positive. And then I just hope that we can. I'm going on a tangent now, but it'd be nice to see some feminine change. <laughs> yeah, like um, in my job last year uh, as a teacher, um, I was exposed to a workplace that was quite different from what I had previously experienced as a teacher, where they had implemented a ton of online communication systems. Um, and as someone who uh, suffers from uh, chronic anxiety, um, those algodonic signals that you're describing, Jeremy, of, of, of email and uh, uh, push notifications, I, I'd, I'd rank them like in terms of like the worst inventions in the history of humanity. I would put email at the top uh, because it, it, I find it to be the most stressful to get. And then I put the push notification down below that. <laughs> uh, uh, so um, it really screwed with my head uh, to go into that new workplace context, the new technological context that they had set up and put me into basically a, a state of permanent crisis uh, and made my life so much harder. And, you know, I, I think I have some ADHD as well. My doctor w won't diagnose it, but um, those things together, it, it, it just made my life a living hell. Um, and it was mostly due to the technology platform that the organization had implemented in the name of like adaptation and responsiveness and blah, blah, blah. Um, okay. Uh, let's go to, uh, Jeremy and then Shane. You're muted, Jeremy. You're muted. I think under capitalism, algodonic signals, especially in electronics, are what they are deliberately. I think it is profitable to have a stressed out, anxious populace, especially when you get the hit of dopamine from responding after the algodonic signal. So it's a constant state of stochastic shock relief, shock relief, shock relief that is, you know, it's, it's something that people use in brainwashing techniques and stuff. It's, I think, all of this is very deliberate, and it's the it's the way capitalism is trying to train us to be workers. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, um, and I think it's it's uh, partially intentional design on the f on the part of these uh, technology makers, and partially uh, the result of incentive structures that they operate on. Um, you do see some attempts to do like filtering. Uh, you know, you got Gmail's one they've done like the last five years. Try to do some automated filtering to make your life somewhat more livable. Um, but there's a lot of shit out there. Um, uh, Shane, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I think um, getting a ADHD di diagnosis is probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because um, it, it helps put a name on a lot of this stuff. Um, I think we could also kind of uh, draw a little bit from the kind of psychology or psychoanalysis stuff as well here, where they they um, they talk a lot about the contrasts or the tension in the organism between 
like kind of libidinal excitation and the like desire to engage with the world and like productive desire and that sort of stuff on the one hand versus like uh in inhibit inhibitory kind of circuits and uh the kind of death drive and that sort of thing where there, there is something in the organism that resents activity because it is afraid of delirium that like engaging too much like this is like the, the kind of like schizo delirium that people suffer from of just like too much fucking stuff going on in their heads and like too much engagement too much connection too much everything there's there's a part of the organism that really tries to push back on that and and bitterly resents the activity that it is it is asked to do and i think that can also show up like in um uh physiological terms as well right that like a lot of rsi seems to actually be that the, the muscles learn to resent the activity they're being made to do and they, they kind of push back on it by in, kind of inventing pain where there really isn't there, there isn't actually nerve or muscle damage but it's um like my arm hates typing you know it, it, because i associate typing with being a programmer in shitty organizations and kind of when when i approach a keyboard my arms reflexively tense up they they really they really hate this kind of activity and so like but they, they do that like sub subconsciously there's there's definitely something to this like integration of these excitatory and inhibitory loops in a very complex organism that is is worth exploring yeah that's this very relatable um i feel like that's probably like you know the sort of uh, resentful uh reaction to excitement um and that sort of like fear of the 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 schizoid mode of behavior like not in the sense that psychology understands schizophrenia today but in the sense that no. <laughs> uh, Deleuze or Guattari would describe it which is a totally non-clinical mm -hmm. description of no. something else um it's the wrong it, word to use. it's completely the wrong word <laughs> yeah. to use yeah uh uh but hey it's psychoanalysis so you know fuck ups abound um uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, but no, that's like incredibly relatable. Uh, I feel like that's like every day of my life, um, uh, dealing with that. Uh, you just, yeah, just say the thing about schizophrenia because I knew someone personally who was schizophrenic or developed schizophrenia mm -hmm. in the, the course of our relationship. And it's a very different thing from what uh, is being described there. Oh, totally. Um, uh, Matt, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, uh, uh, with, you know, with, with, with the skit stuff, I'm, uh, uh, yeah, the, uh, I don't totally know, like, what the psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic thing is for that. Um, uh, I'm, I kind of don't want to know, but it is very wrong and kind of, <laughs> like, like, every time I've heard it used, I mean, a part of my soul dies. Mm -hmm. but, uh, um, yeah, the, uh, I, I think going to more like ADHD stuff with a uh, system four, like, I think yeah, they're very intertwined, like, like, uh, you know, and even in the other direction too, because I find when I take Adderall, like, then I have, like, kind of, um, I've, I've much reduced uh, what they call, like, cognitive um, agility. So task switching becomes very costly. And, uh, um, like, I balance that out with, um, like, some, like, brain market cognitive enhancers. There's one, like, a Nopet that uh, they give to cosmonauts. But, yeah, like, uh, just to be able to, like, uh, you know, be able to sort of, like, move, move about, like, uh, you know, I think, like, five different, like, extra um, cognitive enhancers in, in, order, in order to have that. Like, you know, so the, the, the mechanisms, like, like whatever's going on there, they seem, yeah, they seem very interlinked. Yeah, and I mean, this is all sort of what we get to with the whole point about volitional conditioning of the system, right? That you can develop these um, complex coping strategies um, that 
operate at the volitional level, which are interacting with the sort of um, sympathetic nervous system and uh, interacting with the parasympathetic system, but also just like the kinds of subconscious switching that your system four would do and uh, on its own would probably be really fucked up if you have ADHD in a hyperstimulatory environment like the one that we live in today. Um, okay, well, that's all like super interesting, like social, social psychological stuff. And I, I think the point you, you make about the deaf drive kind of, um, in a way might dovetail with what I was talking about with that inability to future, um, uh, their shame. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, that, that mm-hmm. sort of fanatic thing. I mean, Freud's, I believe Freud's justification for that was somewhat different. But, you know, probably civilization is discontents is like Freud's greatest work, at least in my book. Like the the social psychological stuff he wrote was more interesting than the the psychoanalysis. But, um, well, maybe you talk about that later. Okay, let's move on. Um, So, um, right, okay. So we talk about the... uh, this waking and sleeping. Um, there's another really interesting point that comes up here. Uh, it is that system three from the corporate standpoint is a naturally sleepy or inattentive controller. It is wholly alert downwards. All those automatic autonomic functions must be attended to, but its own major controllers of corporate that is upward awareness are essentially inhibitors If this were not so, the higher levels of control would be inundated with information about the big toe and so forth. Information quite unworthy of strategic or policy level consideration. Well, System 3 almost overdoes it because of the sleep centers in the pons and the medulla. These are called the raphae nuclei and are sited on the midline of the brainstem. Without their systems of neurons packed with serotonin, we would suffer from perpetual insomnia. So if we continue to conduct our control analysis upward, we are likely to shut off the higher sensors by going to sleep. Um, so, you know, this is uh, really interesting. Um, the same phenomenon, as usual, may be observed in management systems. The results of delegation to autonomous units even when these are re-centralized in corporate committee structures at the autonomic level, are ignorance and complacency at the top. Many managing directors, prime ministers, presidents, and dictators have found themselves cocooned in this way, cut off from meaningful activities. The organism is carrying on quite cheerfully on its own. The higher authorities are doing something different altogether. The enterprise as a whole is asleep. If the neurophysiological analogy holds, as a matter of fact, what the top brass is doing is probably dreaming. So, you know, I think here a lot about um, the, great le- the Great Leap Forward uh, and the, the famines that resulted from that, uh, which is exactly what Beer is describing here. Like, Mao did not know that was happening um, because the System 3s were just inhibiting those that information. Um, but, you know, greater than that, I, he was kind of captivated with the Stalinist dream that he had been given by the Soviets, uh, and, and, and was kind of operating in a dream world, 
um, rather than the reality of China that was happening at that time. Um, another more recent example that comes to mind is uh, it has recently come to national attention in Canada that the home care system, the private uh, sorry, the, the privatized uh, uh, old folks home uh, system in Ontario uh, has been uh, a site of chronic abuse of patients and undersupply in the name of profit maximization. Um, and the reason this came to light is because soldiers were brought in to help staff the home care, or sorry, I keep saying home care, it's not home care, it's the, the, the uh, elder care in the, in the old folks' homes. They brought in soldiers to staff these facilities, and the soldiers reported up their chain of command to um, the prime minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, and it then became a matter of public knowledge that, in fact, widespread abuse was happening because of delegation to sort of PPE projects where they were just trying to maximize profit and treating people like subhumans. Um so that was a really uh, sort of glaring example and, and sort of speaks to the broader problems of neoliberalism, uh, if, I, if, I, if I'm thinking frankly, that, you know, neoliberalism wants to delegate everything to PPEs and to private uh, enterprise. And what you end up having is a system that is extremely weak at crisis response, as we've seen in this um, in this uh, uh, pandemic. Because um, the inhibitory impulses of all of those autonomous units actually atrophies the higher level functions of the society. Um, okay, let's let's go to Shane. Um, yeah, yeah, the, those things are not sufficiently integral, right? Because I think um, sometimes I think a naive reading of the, the beer stuff uh, would lead you to think, oh, well, you know, clearly a, a patchwork of micro um, corporations is the way to do things because it's all that delegation downwards, right? The pushing autonomous uh, stuff downwards. But no, beer is also saying that you need to integrate it upwards as well. It's an up-down loop. Um, but the the thing I wanted to say was that, like, I've been reading the uh, Systems Bible by John Gall, and there's, a, there's an interesting little passage in there about the coefficient of fiction. And it's the, it's the ratio of on the one hand, information that reaches the system, like information about the real, which is accurately absorbed by the system, and then the ratio of that amount to the amount that reaches the control circuit of the system, um, and such that, like, I think if the coefficient of fiction is one, it's complete fantasy land, and if it's zero, it's complete contact with reality. Um, and I really love that way of framing it, right? That, like, how... Because we know because of Ashby, like, you'll never get full contact with reality. It's impossible. But, like, you can kind of grade the degree of fiction, the degree of dreamy weirdness that's going on in the control circuit. Um, and, like, for some, for some systems, it's just, it, it's sleepy time, la la land, you know, and it's, it bears no resemblance to reality whatsoever. And for some, it's pretty, pretty okay, you know? Yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, I love that turn of phrase, though. I mean, you know, even more so than the actual conceptual cash value. It's just <laughs> such a good coefficient of fiction is such a good turn of phrase. Uh, it's very cute. Um, OK, uh, so let's let's keep going. Um, 
It is, I think, quite helpful to regard this as a natural state of affairs. This means to say that all is well with the organism except that it is asleep. Therefore, the problem is to awaken it, to alert it, to arouse it from a somnolence to activity. If we think of, or, of the organism, body or firm, from the top down, then the natural state of affairs would be frenetic activity. The problem of stopping the autonomic system from going crazy as a result is perhaps conceptually more difficult. But either way, thinking about it upwards or downwards, system four has to do the switching. So there's a kind of e e equilibrium that it has to uh, control for. The positive solution which the body has found is a special and definite arousal mechanism which alerts the higher brain centers to quash the upward inattentiveness natural to system three at the lower brain levels. This is the ascending reticular formation, an anastomotic reticulum which carries the vital management by exception information up through all the autonomic controllers and the sleep centers, and out through the biggest structure of system three, the, the mesencephalon. At this point, the biggest switch must operate. Is the arousing of the cortex of the higher management to occur or not? Their neurophysiological answer to this question is immensely complicated, and perhaps this is in itself the most important lesson to learn. There are many routes to the cortex. So again, this is speaking to the, the, the like information coming up through the military as opposed to the official channels that I, I mentioned in that, that uh, old age home um, example. Uh, we have seen how the main route brings sensory information straight up the afferent input system to the sensory cortex tends to be inhibited by many systems so that we are not driven crazy by an arbitrary bombardment of stimuli. Then there is an obvious risk that vital arousal information will be suppressed. Now the ascending reticular system receives collateral fibers from the afferent input system which means that the higher centers again stand to be alerted by information that has already been filtered out by the major sensory filters. This collateral information seems to be distributed around the brain in a variety of ways, impinging on the cortex from various directions. I think it's a very um, interesting word to use there, that the, the, these, uh, these afferents are impinging on the cortex. Um, having been refiltered by various systems. The keen importance of a multi-criteria examination of available inputs claiming managerial attention receives the brain's testimony in this way. Um, I think we've kind of covered this point, so we'll keep going. Uh, the hypothalamus is the floor of the third ventricle and very much the link between the third and fourth systems of the model under discussion. Is the highest element in system three or the lowest element in system four? We met the hypothalamus before. It is a major mediator of homeostasis and therefore the most senior regulator of the autonomic system. Moreover, the hypothalamus exerts a major influence on the endocrine glands, and this has much to do with what we normally call, quote-unquote, the emotions. There are other features of the cerebral map in this area which are involved in the whole business of arousal. The hippocampus is heavily implicated, and so is the ma ma uh, mammillary body. All these structures are closely packed in the center of the brain, and there seem to be many feedbacks between them. Remember from part one that the control mechanisms in general become functions of their feedback rather than their input as soon as the regulators um, begin to operate. At any rate, the arousal information carried by the ascending reticular system eventually reaches the cortex, if at all, through the complex mediation of system four. In the brain is switched through the structures just mentioned, through the anterior thalamus, and 
on up through the cingulate cortex, which lies beyond, below the cortical surface area and above the uh, corpus callosum. Check through the root in figure 24. The idea is not to learn the names of the parts, but to understand the necessary richness of the mechanism. There are many, many lateral channels in the cortex, so this information can be, as it were, reviewed by circuits handling both conditioned and unconditioned behavior, compared, as it were, with other information by what is known as the associative cortex or mobilized for direct action, such as fight or flight by the motor cortex itself. This is the command center of volition, the part of the brain at the highest level that triggers action using the descending command chain of the vertical axis right down to the body's ex uh, extremities. So, you know, here we're, we're looking at figure 24. We're seeing how these distinct systems that make up system four, these distinct subsystems, are in very complex feedback interactions with one another. Um, and also they more or less have a kind of direct connection to the cortex and the connection is not routed through a single contact point. There's actually a variety of contact points that are going to stimulate different cortex sections. So there's like this really complex interaction of feedbacks happening in the core here. But then the, the membrane connecting that to the cortex is not a straight up and down connection like we've been seeing uh, leading into System 4. So this is a really interesting construction. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I kind of imagine this as like, um, like a kind of surface that's like bubbling and just splashing upwards into the into the cortex, right? That it has kind of like full contact. It seems like that, like it can kind of get, it can burst through the surface of a sphere into the into the cortex from all kinds of angles. And that's maybe why the use the term impinge, right? It feels like the the cortex has some or the, the, the upper levels of the brain have some interest in being disinterested in what's going on down below. And there's this kind of like violent upsurge of information that it, it kind of can't ignore at some point. It, like it, it'll, it'll spill over into the consciousness, um, whether it likes it or not. Right. So we get all kinds of weird uh, synthetic effects. Um, and also, like, you know, as you said, uh, Shane, this impinging, it points to the fact that, that the cortex doesn't really have much filtering capacity on its own. Mm -hmm. Without system four, it's kind of fucked because it, yeah. like, it, it, it would just get a direct line from the rest of the body. Um, and also it wouldn't be able to control when to excite, when not to excite. Um, True. Yeah, but I think also, like, I think this, if we think about it through the psychological kind of lens, like, if if we accept the whole like uh, id and ego and all that kind of crap, right? Like, but it, we can we can think of a general model of like a kind of conscious subject and then all these kind of subconscious processes, and the the conscious subject has some interest in being unaware of what's going on down there, like, and then mm -hmm. like this is the thing we observe in humans, right? That like you can try to repress what's going on as much as you want, but it'll eventually burst through in some ways. There's, there's actually something weird here, though, these kind of like multiple semi-antagonistic subsystems of the mind-brain system that all have kind of contra some, somewhat contradictory and somewhat overlapping imperatives. 
uh, and but they oh, they do cohere overall in in this like as you say like looking at that looking at that fucking diagram like it's a very very complex structure and there's many many suborders to it and they're all kind of like throwing information at each other and and repressing information and allowing it to bubble through and forcing it to bubble through and sometimes directly drawing information it's, it's wild stuff you know absolutely yes um uh so this presents us with a lot of engineering challenges um to 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 actually make some use of this information um so let's let's move on um now in the next section we see how uh there's this figure 25 and it's the connections between internal sensory events internal motor events external motor events and external sensory events. And these all have to be bi-directional connections with each other. Um, so, uh, so he says, uh, so our biggest switch of all really has a great deal to do. It is right on the vertical command axis, linking the thinking chamber of the whole organism to its corporate embodiment and constitutes a ramified collection of algata nodes for switching downward all the volitional requirements of the brain. Equally, it switches upward all the information required by the cortex to run the body, including appropriate representations, duly filtered, of autonomic function, uh, which is itself commanded from lower down. Next, it captures all data relating to the environment through whichever senses filters, uh, through whichever senses, filters them and redistributes relevant information both upwards and downwards for use by all the other control echelons. Finally, it operates what we have called the algodonic system itself, the pain-pleasure-wake-sleep-arousal mechanisms, which have their special nerves and their collateral channels distinct from the normal afferent and efferent pathways. So there's actually three core functions that are being performed by System 4 here. Uh, so they're uh, upward-downward switching, uh, sensory capture, and... Um, the algodonic system regulation. <clears throat> so uh, Beer describes how uh, in principles of self-organization, um, he created a mathematical model for this um, and tried to show how it was applicable to the operation of the firm. Uh, so the model that he developed um is what's represented in figure 25. And he says, uh, both the sensory and the motor activities of the brain, which remember have their highest, that is system five representation in distinct and different locations of the cerebral cortex, handle accounts of both internal and external events. Organisms, whether bodies or firms, maintain a clear distinction between all four groups. To muddle internal and external affairs or to confuse passive sensibility with sensations of action in regard to either means a major pathological condition. Now, I was just listening to a podcast uh, the other day that was uh, talking about uh, trying to bring um, Buddhist psychological observations into uh, the... Um, clinical psychological realm 
and one thing they were talking about is something called an arising and passing away event. Um, and what what that kind of implies it usually happens during meditation, um, not to all people, but to some people, although it can happen at other times as well. Um, it kind of implies a muddling of these systems uh, where your internal external gets all muddled up together. Um, and, you know, this can lead to serious pathology, like people's whole sense of self breaking. Um, and the, the podcaster was talking about, like, we need to put this in clinical reference because uh, our physicians right now don't understand this phenomenon and are, are misdiagnosing it as something else. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, but there's obviously all kinds of other disorders that you could see as, as, as coming out of this. Um, okay. Uh, is there anything else people want to address before we get to the final really important example? Okay. Uh, so let's move on then. Uh, now, this is the Ashby example that Beer brings up. Um, it's probably best described by the figure 25. Um, so Ashby, um, he, now where does it give the original description? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it was devised, so the ultra stability, it was devised by Ross Ashby specifically to explain, also in mathematical terms, the nature of physiological homeostasis. And that is the problem we are considering here. Uh, putting the matter in its simplest form, we consider just one coupling of the sort described in chapter, or in figure 25. There is a set of states which each of the two groups of activities may take up. Since each group is itself a highly complex organization involving huge number of events, and since each event might take on any one of a huge number of forms, we have a typical system of proliferating variety. Um, now, he describes... He describes how, in theory... If you have two points, two such points connected to each other, they should be able to stabilize each other just by understanding whether the other is in homeostasis or not. They're connected by one connection and its only signal is homeostasis, yes or no. Um, in theory, like in the sort of mathematical proof, you will eventually reach that point of uh, stabilization. But just by searching for that balance reciprocally, in practice, it takes an almost like infinite amount of time for that to happen. Um, what Beer discovered was, uh, it goes into hunting, right? Uh, um, now, what Beer discovered was that if you make the systems learn from uh, what inputs they get and the routing that happens within them, then it's possible to stabilize much, much faster. Um, so um, he says, I personally spent many years experimenting with the problem in three sorts of systems. 
uh, mathematical model, actual machines, and social systems with the firm. In all three manifestations, the problems seem to revolve around learning. There is never requisite variety, never adequate channel capacity, and never enough time to reach homeostasis at this meta-control level by introducing variations, although formally the process ought to work in the end. I learned how to modify all three experimental approaches from the study of Waddington's work in genetics, for evolution has exactly the same problems and the rate at which adaptation can possibly occur. So he makes an analogy to Darwin and says, you know, Darwin's sort of trial and error description of uh, how evolution works is not really how it works in a dynamic ecosystem. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, the, the 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 crucial thing that's introduced there is is recording. Memory, yeah, right. Yeah, like it's, it's mutation plus memory. Yes, or, or some medium of recording is the the key ingredient because mutation alone will just kind of spiral around in a in a hunting pattern. Once you, once you introduce a memory medium of some kind or some kind of learning in the systems, you, you much more rapidly converge on stability or right. converge on kind of like. In, in the example he's interested in here, um, of like not just kind of spiraling around. Okay, yeah, and uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, in um, cybernetics and management, this diagram from figure 26 appears in the chapter on building the cybernetic factory. And his idea is that these are a linkage between two cybernetic components of the factory that need to be homeostatically linked with each other. So it's really interesting to see the same, basically roughly same diagram where there it's talking about a cybernetic factory and here it's more generalized into any sort of setup. Right. It's that uh, the sort of cybernetics and control he's talking about is like the, the management uh, example he was experimenting with, a third type. Uh, Shane, go ahead. So it's worth thinking about what kind of memory do most firms have? They don't really have any. Or like most uh, political organizations or, or political movements. Very little in the way of memory. Very little way in the way of recording, of like, in this kind of learning and adaptation sense. Um, usually when somebody who was involved in a certain project or whatever, or somebody who was there or there on the, at the time, when they leave or die, that's, that's it. The information's gone. Like, the, the, there's no genetic code to these things. They don't, they don't persist. Right. Well, or at least the transmission mechanism is really noisy and imperfect. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so to describe this, he says, um, he inserted the algodonode into the theory of the anastomotic reticulum. In both cases, the idea is that the movement of a trajectory changes the conditional probabilities along its path that this path will be used again. The criterion is, of course, the speed of success and adaptation, what engineers might call minimizing the relaxation time of the system. If the trajectory can find a natural return route to its circle, then this pathway will, it will in future be facilitated. If it moves into an area of phase space from which returns proves to be dangerously difficult and lengthy, then the probabilities change so that it is less and less likely to enter that area again. This means that the apparently unstructured phase space of the system uh, to, uh, to which we have 
so far admitted only one organized component, the original circle, will gradually grow in organizational structure. For other sets of dots than those indicating homeostasis will be grouped together in a self-organizing way and will be marked, designated by the roots home and the difficulties to be expected in um, realizing them. So basically, you're going to get the more efficient roots uh, become progressively more probable and the less efficient roots become progressively less probable, and that produces more stability. Um, I think, Jeremy, you should mute yourself because I'm still getting some feedback on your end. <clears throat> um, great. So um, there's a problem, though, with this approach, right? Uh, uh, Steve, go ahead. You. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe finish the reading that you're going to do, and then I'll... Okay. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, uh, I'll just finish up reading about the problem, uh, Shane, and then we'll get we'll circle back to you and Steve. Uh, so insofar as the Algona nodes really work, insofar then as the individual systems rapidly converge on both internal stability and corporate ultra stability, insofar as recognition and matching occur, so that organization extends across the intervening anastomotic reticulum. The whole switch is in danger of losing its flexibility and selectivity. It will become set in its ways. Like, literally, the paths will become set, right? Um, <clears throat> we see this happening in every kind of social situation. It leads to stereotype behavior. Again, we were talking about gender, right? Gender is exactly this kind of problem. Uh, gender is a functional variety attenuator, but it uh, becomes stereotyped and and uh, uh, dysfunctional. Um, <clears throat> uh, to taboos, to a lack of adaptivity is an outcome of too facile an adaptation. We know about it within evolution too, in the over-specialization of species, which leads to them becoming extinct. Uh, and the example here I thought of was um, the many of the birds of New Zealand right, that went extinct when mammals were introduced to New Zealand because they, they were over-specialized um, to a uh, local context and couldn't adapt. Um, we see in the firm which really knows its business, uh, we see it in the firm which really knows its business to the extent that it can no longer recognize either the new technological challenge or that the business is changing. Um then return to the brain from which this model is drawn, where we can once at once see the point. For we actually said that the brain would be sleeping as a result of all this filtering and self-regulation. We also said that it would become inattentive as a result of too much organizational delegation and self-organization. We have also learned that the answer lies with a collateral afferent system, a special development of algodonic filters, and a multi-path redistribution of arousal messages to System 5. It was called the Ascending Reticular Formation, and it is the core of System 4. Okay, so let's uh, go to Steve, Shane, and then Jeremy. Yeah, so, um, no, I found this, I mean, I found this really interesting because it really does resonate with, like, a couple of things. So one sort of there's, like I said in the comments, like, uh, made me think of reinforcement learning and policy learning, right? So policies are the paths through the states. Um, and you have to learn that through exploration. Um, and you have to learn that through exploration. And then, you know, when you want to actually get the most reward possible, you exploit that and follow the paths that have the most 
high probability of actually getting you to that point. So I think we talked about the exploration exploitation trade-off um, in uh, previous discussions. And it's interesting to sort of loop back on that too with um, this con in the context of like the sort of rising and falling thresholds and environments, because that's exactly the sort of like regulator that you can use in, in that, in that, in that situation. Um, so, you know, the more states you get thrown into, whether it's through your, your environment, putting you into a different state, you're going to have to eventually find a path back to your homeostasis. And the more experience you get, the more likely you're able to actually be able to do that. And I think that's, that's right, you know, in, in, um, in some clear ways, but like what I think is interesting too, that sort of gets back to some of the work I actually did for my thesis too, which is like that circle around the states that you consider to be homeostasis. What does that mean? Where does that come from? Like, why should you actually draw that discrete boundary between things, especially when you're starting to talk about, you know, it's all very conditional, there's all probabilities involved and you're, it's constantly like expanding further and further outwards. And I think like, the transition from what is either at least a bigger space or in general more of like a continuous space into that discrete representation which in this context is you know homeostasis or not homeostasis is, is really powerful and like really the only way that you can actually get to increasing hierarchies of abstractions because you can't deal with adding more and more continuous variables or you know high high dimensional space spaces um, and that's also why I had the question of like, does every state in A contain the information about what state you are in B? Um, those lines that go laterally across. I mean, it's fine if you do that, but you have to compress the information in some sort of meaningful way. And if and, uh, yeah, um, no, it it doesn't. It's the so it, the state contains whether the its its pair is in homeostasis and right. also its internal state. The, the the yeah so yeah, that that that's what it needs to trace the the distance right yeah <laughs> um yeah so i mean that that was a little unclear from the reading like whether it knew specifically you're in state 23 of b you know if you need that and even if you were like it's not completely unreasonable to assume that assuming you don't really care about what state 23 means on the other side there could be a hundred other variables that that really pertains to and it's already been encapsulated into a small, a more efficient representation, and that's fine. You know, you can. That's a way of dealing with um, the complexity and attractability. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think there's some you know real powerful stuff here, and I think um, I think there's something like that. I forget who was saying this before, but like it's not clear how this translates into the firm. You know, is it is it processes? Is it procedures? Um, are those the equivalent of policies? Um, what guarantee is that there that they are valid or work? You know, that's that's a hard question, and there isn't really a good measure or metric for that. Right. So I think we can take away the three functions of System Four that uh, your outlines here, but we're going to need to do more work in terms of making this practicable. Uh, okay, uh, we will go now to, uh, or actually, I just have one other thing to say. The, the, the example that I think about here, which obviously comes to mind, is of two people dancing, a pair dancing, right? What you are concerned with in order to maintain the stability of say, you know, like if you're doing a waltz or something, is your internal state 
and whether your partner is out of balance, right? And by just checking those things, you can actually harmonize and and dance together. Um, so it's, it's, it seems to be a good example of what's being described here. Uh, Shane, uh, and then uh, Jeremy, and then Lauren. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, the dancing thing is a, is a great example of this. But um, this is a really explosive page. Uh, it's wonderful stuff, and it reminds me a lot of what we saw in, a, in Ashby, um, like in Ashby's introduction. But there's one particular bit that jumps out at me. Um, if the trajectory can find a natural return route to its circle, then this pathway will in the future be facilitated. That immediately reminded me of the Jason Moore stuff, of the way the capitalist system exploits cheap natures, and I think we need to start thinking about the economy of uh, cybernetics and the economy of control, because I think that systems are generally incentivized to cheapen their means of control. They're incentivized to naturalize or to exploit natural features of their substrate to help themselves make it cheaper to return to stability. So for maybe an example is if you were given the task, of, you were given a ball, like a football, and you were told to keep it as still as possible, you'd be a fool to take it to the top of a hill because it's probably going to roll down. You'd be better off going down into the bottom of a valley and just leaving it there because you can exploit a physical feature of the natural environment to do the work for you. And similarly, the bioorganism can exploit chemical and like cell biological features to do its regulation for it. And, you know, you can push down to the level of physics, right? Like there's, and, and then up, but we can also go up the way. Like I think a social system will often rely on features of the human mind to, to do its work for it. So like, I think maybe this is a partial answer to what Steve was getting at. That like, how, in a firm, how is it that you have these like contours that generally return the system to stability? If you can make people fucking terrified, they'll do what you ask them you can kind of exploit a natural feature of the human nervous system and social systems to uh, make them fucking obedient. You know what I mean? Like it's, or it, it's not an accident that capitalism piggybacks on human uh, psychology to, to, to make its own reproduction cheaper. I think this is, I don't want to take up too much time right now with it, but this is something I'm very interested in getting into in, in general is the, the economy of regulation and how systems push their regulation features downward into their substrate to cheapen their own reproduction. Right. And this is just kind of like a expansion of what is implied by Ashby's law, right? Um, totally. Yeah. 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 Um, that, yeah. So uh, that's, you know, very uh, useful to think about in saying, well, if we are going to design an alternate system, it needs to uh, economize in control. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. Uh, Jeremy, and then Lauren. So in Decision and Control, the second chapter of Decision and Control, Beer's book before this, is about institutional epistemology. Like, what is the epistemology of the entire institution? And he uses uh, Charles, the philosopher Charles per Peirce and his categories in epistemology to do it. And one of them, the very first one, he calls the category of tenacity. 
And basically the idea is that systems tenaciously cling to what they currently are. And this is not an intelligent process, but if you introduce any sort of new idea to the institution, the institution will say, well, this is the way we've always done it. And that's the end of the story. And that there's a tenacity to cling to the past that is terrible for organizations, but comes out of an evolutionary biological thing, which is keep doing what you're doing seems to be working, you know? And uh, it made me think about that when he was talking about um, the uh, uh, corporate ultra stability, that corporate ultra stability is very much about this process of tenacity of saying, you know, which totally destroys the flexibility of the organization. And that tenacity will kill the organization. Beer uses the example of uh, comparing thermodynamics to information theory and says that what one group might call information, another might call energy. And that therefore this system of tenacity, the, the system of tenacity ultimately leads to um, an equilibrium of energy in a system, which is a dead system. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a brick has equilibrium of energy within the brick, you know, and that institutions are prone to bricking themselves and that the only way to keep that from happening is to vary energy flow levels within the system. Yeah, uh, I think that is a kind of fundamental insight of uh, like Nagong or um, Tai Chi. Uh, and um, you can see this tendency in people too, where, you know, if you are not active into your elder years, you're going to die a lot faster because you're going to uh, assume a very rigid uh, and constant uh, physical um, state, which will actually in, uh, lower the functioning of your organs and, and lead to your death uh, much faster. So um, this is, uh, yeah, this, this is like an insight that you go see going all the way back in uh, Taoist uh, medicine and uh, sort of thinking. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, uh, Lauren. Yeah, I think this is like kind of related to Shane's point, but I, this really drew together what Beer was saying earlier about um, like inhibitions and excitatory functions of drugs and alcohol, which I translate to coping mechanisms because I think this is like why this part of the book made like so much sense for me. I, I might be misunderstanding parts of it, but um, I've had the displeasure of being involved in uh, create like sort of community organization and developing like um, uh, like organizational committees to help care for a community. And in that instance, there was no structure because we had just moved on from like kind of a tyrannical situation where one person was kind of dictating the community to a, what they wanted to be like a sort of a more equitable, like uh, organized way to yeah like give the community what they needed and be an executive function for that community um but there was no structure and so like it really was just like 
they prioritize sort of putting, getting the right people on the committee and not the right structures. And what ended up happening is you get this beautiful intersection of bad coping mechanisms, identity politics, and like the sort of really like impossible to achieve homeostasis because in that situation, the people become your structure and the coping, coping mechanisms, coping mechanisms become people. And so like if uh, the one dude who was like running that committee was like, oh crap, I need help doing this. He'd be like, Lauren, you're that person who can do that thing really well. You'll do it. <laughs> um, and they, like that works for a time if things are going okay as per the status quo because you get used to communicating to each other. You get used to working with each other. But then when you get these crises moments, um, that can like really go horribly wrong where we did have a community crisis and the communication broke down because everyone was like moving too quickly. Things spun out of control and uh, it ended up like causing a lot of harm to people externally and internally on the committee. And it, I think this, I was like, Oh, this explains exactly what happened when all those things like came into like this awful shit storm <laughs> of like a, an attempt at organization. And so I think living, having lived through the experience and really, shed a light on the value that I'm sure will come in the following chapters with like system organization and having structures in place and like autonomic systems and like blah, blah, blah. So uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's going to like shed a lot of light on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's an excellent point is that if you follow the, um, the sort of uh, pre-system for uh, ultra-stable uh, model uh, for organization, you're really going to uh, reify people as their capacities and their identities and like how their identities are shorthands for their capacities. So um, this is not only going to lead to uh, an inability to think beyond the personal, it's also going to lead to... Um, a lot of cementing of um, structural oppression because uh, we talked about how um, these uh, systems are going to economize in order to reach stability. And uh, one way that you can economize quite well in dealing with other people uh, or sorry, quite uh, efficiently with other people is to address them on the basis of their identity and their position within a system of structural oppression. So it's like, oh, well, we need care work done. Okay, we'll get the women to do that. Um, like, you know, they can do the cooking, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's all shorthand. Uh, and it's it's a variety attenuator and it's a very fast way of reaching stability, but it's also really fucked up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, this is a, a really interesting point um, for organizational uh, dysfunction. Okay, so um, we talk about the functioning of the arousal system. Um Okay, so he's, he's going to talk a little bit about how System 4 ought to work. Um, 
We may ask how this arousal, arousal system actually works. It is not difficult to perceive a formal managerial analog for the ascending collateral pathways. We should need to siphon off information from standard reporting systems and to process the data through special statistical importance filters as described in earlier chapters. Instead of collecting aggregate information about the parts of the company for further aggregation directed to the simple presentation of a company overview at the top, we should be highly selective. So again, this is, this is absolutely how the, uh, how Project Cybersyn was designed, right? This is the, the design principle behind Project Cybersyn and how the UI was designed, how the filtering was designed. It's, it's all in there. Um, uh, the aggregation arrangement must continue in some form, of course, as it does in the body, and must in the firm to meet the requirements of general management and indeed of the Companies Act. But the arousal system would measure statistical nonconformity on the basis of probability theory at the source of the trouble wherever it occurred. Synapses would then pass these special data on, acting as ALGA denotes at every stage until System 4 operated in its biggest switch a capacity to alert the appropriate people or bodies within top management. These would themselves need to be specially organized to handle arousal input. They would have special powers. To do what, precisely? How do the ascending reticular system and the fifth-level reactions in the cortex change things to attain a radically new mode of behavior in the body? The answer comes in two stages. First of all, they must intervene quickly uh, and drastically in the tonicity of the corporate body. The tone of the body or its organs is a measure of its tension and therefore of its preparedness to act fast. When we sleep, muscle tone falls off so that limbs are limp and the musculature at the back of the neck is flaccid. Alerting the organism means an immediate pumping up of tone, again, by a special arrangement whereby hormones are made available to activate all the feedback loops, which are concerned with attentiveness, to change the thresholds of synapses and neurons and so forth. In management situations, we can see what this means, but we know that the speed of response is mostly far too slow. In the production context, an activating system usually works well in the presence of something like catastrophe. And he goes on to describe, like, you know, if you have a catastrophic failure in a plant, there's going to be a phone call to the boss and be like, oh, my God, everything's on fire. Um, but uh, short of such bizarre threats, however, the arousal mechanism in managerial and government situations of algodonic character may take months to become active. It is mostly too late and formal procedures are needed to change this situation. What this amounts to is that there is an arousal system in management, but that its thresholds are fixed at such high levels that action is triggered only when the emergency is nearly over for good or ill. Then the second part of the answer is to note the real meaning at the abstract level of cybernetic thinking of a change in tone as drastic as all this. It is a reprogramming of the control system. That means a switching out of one control mode and switching in of a different one. It is too facile to say that various activities in the corporate government must be increased, that reactions will be faster, that there should be more adrenaline or less inhibition. All these comparatives propose a change of rate. That concept suffices when we think of the need to adjust ongoing behavior to changing circumstances. But in arousal and in general algodonic situations, the rate of change involved is so steep that it is more convenient to think of it as a step function. 
Now, if that entails reprogramming, there is clearly no time available to embark on experimental program modifications. There needs to be a separate program already, which is selected in short order and used. So what he ends up coming up with is the idea of like the yellow alert and red alert, right? These are uh, programs for action that are set aside as contingency plans um, and can be acted on in in swift, uh, you know, in a swift manner. So you know, uh, I've been on Jumpsuit Utopia. Uh, a lot and you watch a lot of Trek and you notice that like they're always going to red alert and yellow alert and you're kind of thinking like well why aren't they just on red alert all the time because it's going to come up in every episode that they have to go to red alert but the answer is that like this is a program that's been set aside for the time when it is necessary and it can be activated and everybody can you know change their synapse functions and so on to 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 act on it um, and that's kind of an efficient um, response to the problem. Uh, any comments on this final bit? Uh, Shane, go ahead. It's it's very interesting here that like um, this mode switching, right? Like I think later in the book, Beer will say that most organisms seem to have maybe five, six different modes, right? They've got normal, just chilling out mode. They've got feeding, hunting, sleeping. Uh, you know, fight, flight, I don't know, had two or three others there, um, and that they, they abruptly shift from one mode to the other to, to kind of generally reprogram behavior. Um, and I think, like, further down here, he kind of goes on about, like, the, you know, the, like, pandemic sort of things, right? And it's like, our society really doesn't have any other modes. It has exactly one mode, and that's capital accumulation. Or it, it implicitly has a second mode, which is nullity. Like there's nothing is the alternative. Like there's it, it's like Thatcher sort of from beyond the grave. There is simply no alternative. There are no other modes to switch into, aside from ceasing activity. Uh, the death drive must is the only alternative to the capital drive. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how um, the U.S. government, the Department of Homeland Security, after 9/11, tried to implement a system like this, and it was just a joke, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Wall Street wouldn't have it, right? <laughs> well, it was, it, and also just it was widely misused, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, it, yeah, it's it's interesting to see that like they did try to implement something similar to what Beer's proposing, but in a really dysfunctional way. But I guess uh, the, having having a meaningful ability to mode switch as a whole civilization would require a level of like trust in governance and like functional governance that is seemingly fantastical to us at the at the moment like it's it's hard to imagine actually trusting the govern governance to actually do this kind of thing it, well in, in beer's model in in you know cybersyn 3.0 fucking utopia yes it, it it's it becomes feasible but like i don't know it's it's really far off from like being able to trust that like fema isn't just going to stuff you into a fucking load of crates and ship you off to the desert you know well, uh, when they mode switch i i think that We've seen a variety of levels of, of functionality in response to the current crisis and a variety of like levels of, 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 of um, obedience to the mode switch, mm-hmm. right? Like, for example, in Sweden, there was uh, sufficient trust in the, the government institutions that people basically went along with what the government institutions were telling them to do. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, even though thousands of people are dying, 
the government knows best and we're going to obey orders. Right. Um, sure. So that was that was really quite a, a coordinated response. Um, and, you know, you had, for example, in New Zealand, they like shut down the whole deal and managed to achieve more or less extinction of, of the virus. Mm-hmm. So, like, these things are not totally pie in the sky. Um, they yeah. also had more time to organize themselves, right, than anybody else and, and all that kind of thing. But um, I think it's just we're kind of like, you know, looking at the most fucked examples of like the UK yeah. and the US. And it's like, well, yeah, it's a it's just absolute <laughs> pipe dream that you, you can get there. You know that Sweden is a socialist utopia, right? Like it's a fucking completely <laughs> futuristic society, right? From our perspective. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. From our, yeah. That's that's why Jacobin could just be like Sweden. Yeah. The do that thing. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, even though that's not really a good program. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. So um, that brings us to the end of section two. Is there any final comments people would like to make? Uh, just, just one more thing. I think at the beginning you'd alluded to the chapters getting longer. I think that's in section four that they'll start to get oh, okay. long. Okay. Um, so I think, I think we're probably safe for the next, the next section. But um, yeah. Okay. It'll be, four um, will be as long. All right. So in that sense, uh, in that uh With that in mind, we'll uh, do the intro to part three and chapter 11 uh, next time. Corporate structure and its quantification. Speaking of uh, the concerns we just had in this session, uh, it seems to be dealing immediately with those. So um, let's uh, see what happens with the next chapter, and uh, we'll continue this ride to the end. Uh, Thank you for participating, everybody. Uh, It was a really interesting discussion. I'm sorry it ran so long again, uh, but uh, I think we (laughs) thoroughly got through this chapter. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye. Bye.